Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Welcome back, everybody, to the Trial Brief. Thanks for joining me today. As you know, I had Fred Guttenberg on the podcast. We were talking about gun reform and issues surrounding gun violence. As you know from listening to this podcast, I'm very interested in the Second Amendment, and we've covered topics relating to the Second Amendment quite a bit. And I was really, really lucky to come across at the end of 2020, a great book, Policing the Second Amendment. It's by uh, Dr. Jennifer Carlson. Professor Carlson is a uh, associate professor of sociology and government and public policy at the University of Arizona. She published her first book in 2015 entitled Citizen Protectors, the Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. This is your second book, Professor? Yeah, yeah. my second book, yeah. Again, it's entitled Policing the Second Amendment, Guns, Law Enforcement, and the Politics of Race. And it's a Princeton University Press publication. It's an outstanding book. And I could have started the podcast with statistics about with respect to gun violence and, and deaths. And I, I think we all, pretty much everybody who's listening understands that gun violence is a uniquely American epidemic. That's the grim reality of it. You know, the combination of systemic racism, white supremacy, the American gun culture, and the militarization of police has, has really become, for lack of a better term, toxic. You know, I've read a lot of books on, on the Second Amendment uh, dealing with these issues. And, and this book was very unique because of the way you went about it. So anyway, first of all, welcome. Yeah, thank it's you great so, to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about how you went about uh, putting the book together. Yeah, so this book, Placing the Second Amendment, really comes out of my first book, Citizen Protectors. So that book, that first book, was all about sort of making sense of contemporary gun culture in the U.S. And I should really say that there are, are many gun cultures in the U.S. It's regionally divided. It's divided according to why people own guns, whether they're carrying their guns, what kinds of guns they're owning and carrying. Uh, and so the citizen protectors really focused on um, gun carry culture. And so I looked at Michigan, I studied open carriers, concealed carriers. And one of the things that I heard over and over again, uh, especially from um, concealed carriers, was this idea that, you know, the police should be really happy that they're doing this, that this is, you know, the police shouldn't see them as a threat. And, you know, oftentimes this is... Um, you know, white middle-aged men saying this, the police should not be threatened by their guns. They should, you know, if they stop an armed citizen, the police should see them as, you know, part of the project of, of policing and, and good for social order, for public order. And so this raised the question, of course, of what do police themselves think? So are police also in favor of uh, gu- civilians, everyday civilians owning, carrying guns? Uh, if so, on what terms? And so this just really opened up a whole line of questioning uh, and led me to go to three different states. So Arizona, California, and Michigan. If you know uh, anything about gun laws or or just (laughs) the images of those states and and sort of the the popular mind, um, they're very different with regard to their gun cultures, their gun laws. California is obviously the most restrictive out of those three. Uh, Arizona is, uh, I call it uh, gun lax because um, there's there's very little uh, infrastructure either uh, in terms of laws uh, as well as uh, enforcement apparatuses. And then Michigan is kind of in the middle. And so what I wanted to know was how uh, police themselves make sense of gun carry and this new gun carry culture that's emerged over the last several decades. Yeah. And so I, I talked to police chiefs in those states. I also did something that was actually, I I just got in in the nick of time, which is um, I was able to observe 
licensing boards. So actual decisions on how people, how, how administrators make decisions about who gets a license to carry a gun and who doesn't. So we often have this line, you know, this is the NRA's line that the shall issue uh, concealed carry system is a non-discretionary system. Most states are shall issue. If they do issue licenses, you know, not, not getting into the constitutional or permitless carry stuff. And what I found in my research in Michigan was that actually there was, uh, there is discretion and it's, um, and, and you can really see that along the axis of race. And so the reason I say that I got in just in the nick of time is that these public gun boards, which allowed me to actually observe these, these licensing processes in action were actually um, closed in Michigan. And so basically the, the whole process was kind of veered through the courts. In most states, you can't actually get at, you know, as an academic, I can't FOIA records. I can't figure out how these decisions are actually made. And, um, you know, that's a huge problem because, you know, we don't, we don't know in terms of, you know, whether there are actual, you know, whether there's biases, how, you know, how gun laws themselves are actually enforced. And so those are the kind of two big pieces of data. And then of course I look at sort of the history of policing, the history of gun laws and how sort of the politics of the police and the politics of guns have intersected over, over time in the United States. Along those lines, I was a a prosecutor in the late 80s and the early 90s. And it was a time where nine millimeter weapons were starting to become the weapon of choice on the street. And there were there was this new thing, and at least it seemed new, and maybe it wasn't as new, but it was becoming more prevalent to have these armor-piercing bullets, these, you know, the the bullets that were were much more lethal that were on the street. And the feedback we would get in law enforcement was that the police wanted these off the street. And there was such support at the time by police unions and and police officers for the assault weapons ban back Mm -hmm. in the early 90s. And I remember, um, I can even remember when the NRA magazine was a hunting safety magazine. So how did all of this change? And, And before you get to that, what I'd love for you to touch on is the the history of policing and, and weapons for, with the police, because I found that really, I, I didn't know any of that. And I didn't know uh, the history. And um, I'd love for you to, uh, to dive into that a little bit. Okay, there are so many big pieces to kind of move around in the in the puzzle you just laid out. So I, I hope I feel like we could spend the rest of the podcast just like dis- right. <laughs> discussing this one question. Um, and the assault weapons ban is a f- and, and police support for the assault weapons ban is is an absolutely fascinating moment in the history of gun politics in the in the US. Uh, so I definitely want to dig into that. But before getting into that to kind of get us, you know, thinking historically and thinking with sort of a long historical view. Uh, one of the things that I always really Really think is important to emphasize anytime we're talking about policing is that this idea of public law enforcement as sort of an institution, a state institution that monopolizes policing, that that's actually very historically new. Uh, the whole idea of a police agency, a municipal police agency, um, that really didn't take hold in the United States until the 1850s and onwards. Um, and up until that point and, and thereafter that point, policing was done in a variety of forms that really cross 
cross the lines between sort of public prerogative and private initiative. And so I think it's super important to, to remember that even though, and this is one of my big points in the book, that we really have to think about the politics of guns and the politics of police as, as intertwined and co-constitutive, and that's actually a much more historic, you know, in terms of the long view of his history and of, of American history and policing in the U.S. order maintenance. Um, that's actually much truer to um, to sort of the long range of, of what policing has looked like in this country. Um, and so just kind of, um, you know, riffing off of that idea that policing is actually a rather new institution, despite the fact that it seems so, um, you know, when we talk about things like defund the police, it seems almost impossible to imagine a society without public law enforcement proper, um, it is it is historically very, very new. And even the idea of police having sort of standard weaponry, I mean, certainly patrol rifles, bulletproof vests, um, the sort of more militarized policing gear, that's, that's, you know, decades recent. But even the idea of police having standard issue pistols, that was something that actually the NRA advocated for in the early 1900s. Um, this idea that police should, you know, they should have a standard issue firearm, they should be trained on that firearm, that that would be, you know, the way to uh, disincentivize criminals who, who, you know, could assume that the police barely even knew how to operate their weapons. And so part of what the NRA did, and you're totally right to, to kind of think about the NRA in terms of, you know, training and safety and that sort of thing, because that's, that's what a lot of what the NRA, um, you know, that was a lot of their programming and is still a lot of their programming um, today has to do with firearms training. And so they actually did a whole lot of programming to try and bring police into the fold with regard to firearms, offer police training, police competitions. Now, of course, the, the training of law enforcement is going to be taken over by the FBI in just a couple of decades. And so the NRA doesn't really monopolize that as it does the civilian training for civilian firearms training as it still does today. But it really plays this important role in the early 1900s in terms of getting guns. You know, we think about like, there's this kind of saying in criminology, uh, criminologists who study police often say things like, you know, the police are defined by the gun and the badge, but this idea that the gun would be central to, to the American police officer, that archetype, uh, that was something that was very much sort of pushed by the National Rifle Association. So I think that's super fascinating because we, again, we tend to think about the NRA as, as you know, as, as really separate, you know, it's the gun politics, they're the gun lobby, uh, they're not intersecting with police. And so, you know, once we get to the 1960s, um, actually the NRA continues to develop its programming, its outreach to police. And then once we get to the 1970s, we have a whole lot of interesting things that happen um, that, that actually lead to the, the police very vocally breaking from the gun lobby and embracing a gun control agenda by the 1980s and into the 1990s. Yeah. I'm trying to think back, where did it go wrong? Like where and how did that happen? Yeah, well, so I think it's important to, to I, I actually think it's more useful to think of the 1980s and 1990s and this sort of alliance between uh, the gun gun control lobby and the, you know, major policing organizations. I think it's helpful to think of that more as sort of a blip on this very kind of rocky road toward what is now um, pretty strong support among law enforcement as a whole. And of course, I'm generalizing law enforcement is a heterogeneous group of people. There's 
there's thousands of police agencies, you know, so, so making that clear, but generally speaking, we can see, you know, police are more likely to be members of the NRA than the general public um, on various uh, sort of indicators of support for gun rights, uh, police outpace the general public. So when we think about, you know, oftentimes there's headlines in Washington Post, New York Times that kind of suggest that the, the police are natural allies of the gun control movement. Um, that's really just, um, I didn't find that in my research and I, I don't see it in terms of the, the aggregate data about uh, law enforcement. So what explains what happened in the 1980s and early 90s when you literally have, you know, Clinton signing the assault weapons ban, which of course was not just the assault weapons ban. It was a, a broader crime, crime bill. bill. Crime bill yeah. Right. And I think that's actually part of the answer to, you know, how the police were behind them, sort of, you know, behind him as he was, he was signing that into law, which that bill, it, funded police. It put more officers on the the streets. It was a very pro-law enforcement bill. It included the assault weapons ban, which at the time was seen as a pro-law enforcement um, move. So how did that happen? So what I found um, in my research, kind of trying to understand, um, you know, the the toggling back and forth um, in terms of the, you know, the NRA and the public law enforcement community, the gun, um, the advocates for gun control. So, you know, getting back to the 1960s and 1970s, um, one thing that I think is, is always super important to emphasize is that despite sort of our contemporary uh, sensibilities about the gun debate, that, you know, there's two sides, it's gun control, it's gun rights. And, you know, we know all the arguments, we know how each side interprets the Second Amendment. It's, it's a, it's a, tired debate. Um, those terms of the debate weren't totally fleshed out uh, in the 1960s and into the 1970s. The NRA as this sort of, you know, bulldog, Washington's most most powerful lobby, as, as Clinton called them after, after losing Congress in the 1990s, this really didn't start to take shape until the 1970s when Harlan Carter uh, essentially took over the NRA and steered it toward the hardline organization that we see today. And so we have a lot of sort of um, fits and starts with that um, in the 1970s and 1980s. 1980s into the 1990s. And, um, you know, the NRA is courting law enforcement. They're also pushing back the cop killer bullet, um, the armor piercing bullets. um, You know, this was a huge moment where the NRA basically said, this isn't real. This isn't a real thing. Come on, police. And police said, "Uh -uh, we are, this is, this is, this is not going to fly with us. Um, And so many police uh, started sort of rethinking their, their um, ties to the NRA, which until then, um, you know, the NRA was a place to engage in competitions, get training, um, you know, and I, I already mentioned they, they had a whole arm of the organization that sort of catered to law enforcement. And so what happens in the 1980s is that the NRA sort of, um, you know, saw themselves as the traditional law and order sort of organization. They saw police as sort of natural allies, you know, to use that term again, as crime and particularly, um, you know, quote unquote, urban gun violence comes to be seen as a sort of central problem. So we're thinking about this is the era of crack. This is the era of the war on drugs. This is the era when, you know, police are taking this, frankly, racist, militarized approach to dealing with the problem of urban disorder. This is everything from drug addiction to violence. And suddenly the police start seeing themselves at, you know, as warriors on the front line of this war. And they are being, you know, you can see Daryl Gates, who was a huge uh, spokesperson, LAPD um, chief, really articulating this idea of, you know, police are, are, 
essentially soldiers on the front lines of war being gunned down. And so suddenly um, the gun debate is not about sort of an abstract debate about, you know, victims and, and gun owners and how do we balance this and how do we think through the Second Amendment, but police themselves started seeing them themselves as, as victims, as, as being victimized, uh, particularly in the context of, you know, quote unquote, urban warfare. This is how it was it was talked about and thought about. And so it's it's I think it's really important to, to emphasize that, that it wasn't the case, at least as far as I saw, that the dominant line for police who were starting to think, rethink their gun politics, rethink their allegiance to the NRA and support, um, you know, assault and assault weapons ban. Uh, it wasn't the case that they were sort of broadly galvanized by the problem of um, gun violence that was that was you know ripping apart communities of color, but that they were seeing themselves as 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 victims, and so it was a it was you know almost akin to a, a police bill of you know another line in the police bill of rights, right? That this was a law that would protect law law enforcement, and so I think that's really really important, especially now as you know talk of the an assault weapons ban um, you know is continually brought back up to to remember sort of that was um, those were the terms in which this bill was was passable this those were the that was you know that was the political context um and race was central to it um you know racializing um tropes of of criminals as super predators and you know all of that and so i think um you know when we're thinking about gun policy and this is sort of the the broader uh, point of the book is that we have to be we, we can't talk about gun policy without thinking about the politics of race Absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. The important part of the book for me, at least, which was really new, and it was a new way to look at things. And it was what I thought really was the crux of the book, your discussion about gun militarism versus gun populism, you know, legitimate violence and and the the concept of legitimate violence. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Because I, I think that really would give someone the sense of what's being conveyed in this book. Yeah, yeah. And definitely stop me if I get into my like theoretical sociology talk, because this is <laughs> this is the question that always brings me there. I thank you for for mentioning this term legitimate violence, because that's really what is the term that is at the core of this book is thinking through legitimate violence. And when I say legitimate violence, I mean, violence that is deemed justifiable, respectable, a legitimate by recourse to, to law, to norms, to, you know, and, th- and this can be in the context of a community. It can be in the context of a professional group. It can be in the context of, you know, a whole society. And so most certainly police use of force is is often deemed as, you know, legitimate violence because it is legitimated by virtue of of being executed by the state. But of course, in the United States, what's so fascinating about the American context is the fact that, in fact, legitimate violence is not monopolized by the state, but in fact, it's everyday civilians, private civilians can own and carry firearms. Um, for defensive purposes. And so what gun populism and gun militarism get at are two different ways of thinking about how that legitimate violence should be um, organized, how it should be distributed within society. So who should have access to it? Should it just be the state? Should it be all law-abiding people, and for what ends. And so both terms sort of get at different ways of imagining how that that legitimate violence should be distributed. So police militarism really falls into line with this idea that police should have a monopoly on that violence, that it should not be distributed throughout society. Gun populism really uh, focuses on sort of this populist understanding of, of legitimate violence that, you know, it's, it's, part of the purview of the people. And so it should not be monopolized by, um, you know, just state agents such as public law enforcement. So 
here's the rub. It is not the case, um, as I found with um, my interviews with police, and I would argue, um, you know, this is also not the case if we look through various corners of how we discuss guns in society uh, well beyond the police, that, um, you know, one person may pick gun populism or think through, uh, you know, guns in society in terms of gun militarism, but that actually police toggle between the two. And the way that they toggle between the two has to do with sort of the racial marking of that violence. So what I found was that police who are thinking and talking about gun violence in the context of urban gun violence, gang-related gun violence, uh, uh, gun violence related to, um, you know, drugs and, 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 and that sort of thing, that gun militarism would be activated, whereas um, in the context of sort of active shootings, most certainly other kinds of gun violence, and obviously the, the sort of archetype of the law-abiding armed citizen, that gun populism would be would be um, activated. And so underlying both of these are sort of two different uh, highly racialized tropes of gun users in the U.S., right? The hyper-masculine, criminalized gun user who is generally a person of color, a man of color, and sort of the law-abiding, respectable, salt-of-the-earth sort of gun user who is a law-abiding person who is generally marked as white middle-class man. These two, rather than thinking about it in terms of gun rights versus gun control, I actually found that it was much more useful to think through people's complex ways of sort of making moral judgments about who should or should not have uh, access to the, the right of self-defense and in what context that actually these racial narratives of how violence should be, legitimate violence should be distributed in society, that they were actually much more powerful in sort of explaining people's, in my case, the police chief's um, nuanced views with regard to, to guns. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I don't know how you could separate gun rights and white supremacy. They're tied together. Well, so that's what I think is really interesting. And that's why I think it's always important uh, to think through uh, history, both in terms of its broad brushstrokes, as well as um, the nuances and the kind of stories that upset or complicate history. Um, and this is actually, I mean, this is something that actually goes back to my my first book, Citizen Protectors, which is that, and, and please stop me for getting too, <laughs> too far off of uh, far afield, uh, because um, yeah, I mean, I think this is actually something super interesting to think through in terms of even though white men, white conservative men, white Southern conservative men from the South are disproportionately um, represented among gun owners. Uh, in fact, there's uh, gun owners uh, come from all walks of life, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I, I found in Michigan, and it actually kind of ties into this, this question of the police is that, so Michigan is interesting because it's one of, um, I think maybe one of the only states, I, I haven't been able to see these statistics, uh, comparable statistics in other, other um, states in the US where African-Americans and whites are roughly uh, armed to conceal carry a gun. They're licensed to conceal or carry a gun um, by the state of Michigan at equal rates. And so what I found actually interviewing gun carriers of color and white gun carriers of Michigan is that it's actually the question of police that really separated them. So everybody kind of bought into the mantra of, you know, dial 911 and you wait minutes when seconds matter. So they saw themselves as sort of supplementing the police, but African-American gun carriers in particular saw themselves as sort of maybe even sort of contesting not just uh, sort of dependence on the police, but also, um, you know, what it means to be what it means to be a black man. Um, I mean, just really, uh, you know, really kind of interesting ways to complicate the dominant narratives. And of course, we see this with, um, you know, the Huey Newton Gun Club, which is an African American uh, Black Lives Matter group that's armed that actually formed um, in the aftermath of, of Ferguson. So yeah, so historically, I mean, you can definitely look at gun laws and 
there's no question that gun laws and access to guns were a vehicle of white power um, throughout American history. Uh, that's very difficult to deny. It's impossible to deny because you can you can see the laws explicitly, you know, mentioning not just, you know, oh, free men or what, I mean, white men, uh, you know, the constitution of, of the state constitution of Tennessee, you know, in the years prior to the Civil War explicitly um, gives white men the the uh, capacity to, to carry, to, you know, own and, and carry guns. But that being said, there are these moments where um, that, that right is, rallied uh, in, in ways that resist that narrative. I'm not a gun scholar like yourself, but it has been pretty obvious that the legislation over the last, I don't know how many years, let's say 25 years, has been really a, a stark shift toward the expansion of gun rights, right? Is that, mm-hmm. is that fair? So yeah, I think there's two key threads. So one is that there's absolutely no doubt that there's been a massive expansion in access to, to firepower via guns. We can certainly see that with stand your ground laws. We can see that with concealed carry licensing, as well as the um, doing away with licensing regimes. So in Arizona, if you can legally own a gun, you can legally carry it. You don't need a specialized license to do that. There's been a big expansion, especially with regard to sort of access to firearms uh, with respect to self defense. One of the things that I like to point out, though, is that that does not mean that we haven't had um, some forms of gun control. And so just <laughs> hang in there with me for a moment oh, while I sure, try to sure. back this up, which is that, you know, so so we see the expansion of gun rights. And usually, um, you know, that's often talked about as, you know, there's there's therefore, you know, we, we don't have gun control in this country. And we can see this with regard to, you know, the pushback on something as, as, as you know, as small as um, universal background checks, which, you know, are, are actually, according to the public uh, polls, very popular among, you know, among the American public. What I like to point out, though, is that in in fact, we have had a form of gun control that has proliferated during the same time that gun rights have, have expanded, but it's taken the form of gun criminalization and it, and it generally impacts people of color like the broader regime of criminalization within the United States. So tough on crime gun laws, mandatory minimums attached to gun laws, um, you know, use a gun and you're done. That's the the California law. So even though we tend to, um, yeah, we tend to think in terms of, you know, we don't have gun control. um, You know, when we look at sort of the terrain of gun laws in this country through the lens of gun populism and gun militarism, in fact, we see that there are laws that align with both of those things. And they're very much, um, you know, very much the politics of race undergirds those. So, you know, as a white person, um, it's, it's easy to forget a white person who, who, whose, whose, um, you know, community tends to probably be less impacted by these uh, tough on crime laws as compared to communities of color. Um, it's, it's easy to forget how these laws actually have been very impactful. That's how I kind of think through that piecing together of those different parts of, of the gun legislation that we do have. How do we have a debate? with respect to guns in this country. I mean, you're not going to convince somebody that somebody's not coming for their guns. I think this is very difficult. And I just would love to hear, how do we do this? Yeah, I mean, this is the question that is the driving question of every single thing that I <laughs> that I that I start in terms of research. This is my underlying question of how do we, and it seems so simple, how do we learn to talk to each other yeah. about guns in a way that we can actually hear each other, that we can feel heard? I mean, it's one of the key issues that divide us, right? Um, and this is true, like by but in terms of partisanship, I, I think you know, guns is at the very top of the list um, in terms of what divides American voters with regard to partisanship. Part of what I'm trying to do with this book, of course, is is to change the dialogue in two ways. One, to to kind of get away from what I see as 
you know, illuminating in terms of, you know, allowing us to see two sides and sort of simplifying the world into a binary of gun rights and gun control. That's helpful, I guess, in some ways, but it doesn't actually move us forward because all we end up doing with that kind of binary thinking is, is kind of double down and, and continue to see the other side as, you know, wrong, ignorant, uh, you know, all, all the things that, you know, actually both sides see in each other. So that's the only thing that, you know, I feel like we, we have in common across the gun debate is that both sides see the other side as, as, you know, irrational, emotional, illogical, all of yeah. these, and not, not interested in evidence, um, you know, both sides accuse the other side of that. And so what I'm trying to do by kind of bringing to the table gun militarism and gun populism is to sort of try and break that, that deadlock, that discursive deadlock. Um, and the other piece that I, well, I guess there's three pieces. Piece number two is, is really putting police into the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is something every, every conversation about guns, every proposed piece of legislation about guns necessarily involves the police. It involves the police because police are the gun, the frontline enforcers of gun laws. And so if they um, if they don't have buy-in, if they are disinterested in those laws, if they're going to enforce those laws in a, um, in a biased way, that is going to undermine the best intentions of any lawmaker or policymaker. And so we absolutely have to keep, um, you know, not just in terms of the, you know, the historical picture, but just in terms of, you know, even the instrumental, you know, goals of policymaking, we have to keep, um, we have to think about the politics of guns in terms of the politics of the police as well. And then the third point is really bringing um, race into the conversation. I do not think we can have a conversation about the politics of guns without talking about racism in the form of white supremacy and the form of, you know, racial bias and discrimination in terms of gun law enforcement. Uh, this is the this is something that that we absolutely have to wrestle with. And any gun law, any gun policy that we put forward without taking that into account, um, most certainly runs the risk of, of actually deepening the problems that it purports to solve. Now, in terms of sort of the bigger view beyond, uh, you know, this book, I, I think, you know, this this goes beyond any specific argument I'm making in my in my books. But I do think that the way out is by acknowledging trauma. I think that a lot of the reasons why we have the debate we have yeah. is a result of us as a society just dealing absolutely poorly with with trauma trauma that has occurred to us trauma that we anticipate um, you know of course the gun rights stance which is generally what I've, I've studied so far in my career it's it's all about anticipating the trauma of being a victim of a violent crime mm -hmm. and you know we have to unpack how have we come as a society to see the gun as the ultimate solution the only solution to the threat to the specter of trauma and that's a bigger question that requires us to not just look deeper within ourselves, but also to look beyond guns in terms of, you know, our broader social institutions of safety, security, care, welfare, and all of those things. And so, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes we have the gun debate that we deserve. And I think that we have a lot of work to do as a society to be, um, frankly, more emotionally competent, more reflexive, more um, willing to think about our own vulnerabilities, our own relationships relationship to trauma. And I think the gun debate and it's, it's our utter failure to see one another as human beings. I mean, the fact that, you know, I've studied this for over, you know, for over a decade and I've, I've seen, you know, idea, I, I've seen sort of ways of, um, 
how should I say it, dismissing the other side among gun rights, um, gun within gun rights discourse become sort of more and more central. Um, this whole idea of crisis actors and the, this idea that, that mass shootings don't actually really happen, that this is, you know, this is just kind of a, a you know, a facade. This is, this is a spectacle that isn't real. Um, you know, that to me says this is how, how deep we are willing to go to not face the trauma of gun violence in this country. And, um, and yeah, so I, 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 if the gun debate was easy to solve, we would have solved it by now. And so I think it really requires a lot of work um, on all sides to, to kind of dig deep um, in terms of, in terms of our, our capacities for vulnerability and for recognizing trauma. Sure. You know, you talk about trauma, you know, I think about the numbers, you know, we, we always hear a certain number of people a day are, are shot and killed, uh, you know, by a firearm, but we don't see the numbers of people injured. And then the families that are affected yes. by the people who are injured, it's a cascade of consequences. And that's a topic for another day. I, I think that is so crucial. I mean, just thinking about the, the kids who have experienced a lockdown drill, the, you know, the number of kids who are still attending school and school districts that experienced uh, an active shooting. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, um, it, it's, it's really, uh, frankly, amazing how, how deep that threat is in American society when you actually kind of expand out from, you know, that, that, that very narrow number that we often talk about because it is in itself so huge, the number of people, you know, who, who die by guns every year, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really bewildering for sure. Yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on reform here in New York over the last year. And, and I think between George Floyd and, Orlando Castilla, there's obviously a lot of talk about police reform and we'll set aside defunding. That's a whole different issue. But I'd love to get your your thoughts on reform because it's a complicated issue. There's no simple answer there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that all you're going to give me? There's no simple answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. And I think that, and I, I know we don't want to get into defunding and that means, you know, a million right. different things to a million different sure. people. Sure. But I think that there is something what I can say about reform with the police is that we have been here for decades in terms of reforming the police. Community policing has been recycled in and out, um, you know, in the 1960s, in the 1990s. We're hearing, you know, different versions of it today. And um, we can think about uh, implicit bias training. That's sort of the latest sort of, you know, this is the way that we're going to fix policing. And, you know, these reforms just generally ha have not worked. Uh, one example that I always give is, you know, community policing. There was money settled aside for, um, you know, expanding community policing in the 1990s under Bill Clinton. And what happened with a lot of that money is that it was actually used to um, support police militarization, to purchase military surplus goods. So there are some very deep sort of currents that pull law enforcement. And, and that's, you know, to a large degree, that is, you know, both historically and in terms of the contemporary context, um, th those currents are not just within law enforcement, but also outside of law enforcement. Uh, if you look at who calls the police, who has the most police contact, whites have the most, you know, in terms of police contact, because they're calling the police to police other people, people of color, for example, as we saw with Amy, Amy Cooper in, in New York, mm -hmm. people of color in public spaces. And so the defunding the police movement, you know, again, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But I think the core sort of step that needs to be taken in terms of, of reform is imagining what a world would look like with policing decentered as the sort of 
central problem solver in our country. And the fact that police now police definitely, you know, have their own interests and, you know, they have, you know, the reason we call 911 is because the police, you know, had a campaign to make 911 the central, you know, the central way that, you know, the general public interacts with the police and, and, and came to see the police as sort of the people they should call when they have a problem they can't solve themselves. Well, now we've gotten to a point where every single problem we want to solve, and I'm, I'm talking we, the public, want to mm-hmm. solve, we look to the police. If it's mental health, if it's, um, you know, addiction, if it's poverty, if it, you know, eviction. Sure. All of these things. And so, you know, I, I, again, it goes back to sort of, it's not just a question of reforming the police. It's also questioning and rethinking our own attachment um, to, to public law enforcement. And so I think why defunding the police is so um, sort of threatening to some people is that they immediately go to, oh my God, how could I live in a world without policing? Because mm-hmm. we are so accustomed to seeing police as the, the only people who can solve our problems when we mm-hmm. can't solve them ourselves. And in that way, we've sort of bought into this logic of meeting all problems with force, or at least the threat of force. Because when you call a police officer, you're not calling 911, you know, to get someone to come out to talk through a problem. You're presuming that they're they're coming with the force of the state behind them. And um, yeah, there's a, you know, famous policing scholar, Egon Bittner, who, you know, actually has this, this wonderful phrase where he says, you know, there's something perverse about the public's expectation that, you know, police use force, but the public doesn't ever want to actually specify what that, what the limits of that force should be. Mm-hmm. And so so again, I, I I have a lot of I'm I'm apprehensive about sort of packaging up a little reform and saying this is you know this is what yeah. we should do because right. so many of those kinds of reforms have 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 been crushed under the weight of sort of these broader currents. But I think that um, again, like I don't I don't think that. I, I think that the problem of law enforcement is also the problem of us, right? It's the problem of um, things much broader than um, than public law enforcement proper. You spoke to a lot of people, a lot of police officers, right? You spoke to police chiefs. I just focused on chiefs, and I can I can tell you why I did that because I wanted geographic variation. So mm-hmm. you know, a lot of policing uh, scholars kind of dig into one uh, police agency, and so they tend to study you know really um, you know kind of high profile agencies like maybe. LAPD or NYPD, um, but most police departments don't look like those those big urban sure. agencies. And so what I wanted to do, you know, essentially I wanted to have a less biased sample. I wanted to get as much variation as possible and um, and talk to chiefs who are located in very different contexts to to see how they they thought through these issues. So I didn't I didn't talk to patrol officers, but I think based on the data that I've seen with regard to you know public opinion polls and and so forth, uh, as well as the the sort of what I've heard articulated by um, the, the Fraternal Order of Police and their, their local sort of organizations that I, I think that my findings, if anything, would be that, that in some ways I had a more muted uh, version of my findings from the police chiefs than I would find if I talked to talk to the police officers who who are on the, you know, the front lines. Was there an interview that stood out to you? What I mean by that is there one that gave you maybe more insight into what you were doing than than another? To be honest, I took something from all of the interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I was extremely grateful for all of these police chiefs to take time to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, what I can highlight, which is something that, you know, is difficult to, to convey sometimes in a book, even if you say it really explicitly in the book, which is, um, you know, that these are all complex people. These are people who are dealing with their own issues, dealing with their values and, and the particular sort of dilemmas that they find themselves in as police chiefs at this particular moment of 
history. One of the things I say in the book is that police choose, you know, these chiefs all chose the profession of policing, but they didn't necessarily choose its history. And I think that's that's really important to keep in mind. Um, and yeah, I think I was just really grateful for the, the chiefs that were you know, open to really sort of laying on the table how they they struggled and made sense of uh, made sense of these issues. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, it's hard to pick just one because they were all really, really must have been a, uh, a fascinating journey. What's next for you? So I'm actually wrapping up right now. Uh, well, I shouldn't say wrapping up. I'm, 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 I've wrapped up interviews with gun sellers over the course of 2020. Uh, as we all know, gun sales have have absolutely surged during the multi-layered crises. Is kind of how I'm I'm referring to it. Uh, the multi-layered crises of of 2020. And so I'm working on a book manuscript right now that is uh, trying to unpack uh, sort of the politics of guns as it's intersected with everything that's happened over over the course of 2020. And I'm also um, doing a project interviewing uh, exactly what you mentioned before, this question of survivors and um, this question of, you know, why, you know, basically recognizing and and recognizing sort of, um, you know, how people are situated vis-a-vis gun violence, even if they're, they're not visible through those through those harrowing statistics that that many of us, you know, are, are well aware of. So I'm, I'm talking to survivors, uh, actually in California and Florida, who have survived um, a variety of forms of, of gun violence, um, and trying to get at this question of how that experience has has shaped their lives in a, in, in a variety of ways, politically, socially, culturally all of those things so i know it's super broad because i'm still i'm still doing the research but yeah that's that's what's on deck that's great thank you for writing this book for policing it's fantastic and thank you for for continuing with this work you're this is so necessary for people to understand not only the issues but to understand what the underlying and the underpinnings of, of these things so Thank you so much. You do great work. And I'm looking forward to seeing your work in the future. And if you want to come back on, I'd love to have you back on to talk about it. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. Super. Okay. I wish we had more time, but um, maybe next time. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on the trial brief.